This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. The conversation about how to respond and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results. The core of the problem must be addressed, and that is the nature of modern policing itself. Broken windows practices, the militarization of law enforcement, and the dramatic expansion of the role of police have created a mandate for officers that must be rolled back. This book shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, and even public safety. Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reduction in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. On Friday, I talked to Cade Crockford about why cities and states that want to fight Trump deportations must also work to dismantle mass policing and incarceration. Today, we're going to get into some of the longer history that led us to this current moment with a president who made xenophobia the cornerstone of his campaign. Many Americans take the existence of so-called illegal immigrants for granted, whatever their opinion on the matter. But illegality isn't a property of immigrants. Rather, it's a creation of positive law. And we can only understand how immigrants are declared illegal by the government by examining this country's too often ignored history of racist and exclusionary immigration politics. My guest today is May Nye, an historian at Columbia, and the author of Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern America, which was first published by Princeton University Press in 2004. Nye is also the author of The Lucky Ones, One Family and the Extraordinary Invention of Chinese America. I'm really thrilled to have her on because Impossible Subjects has done a lot to shape my thinking on immigration and thus to shape the book on that subject that I'm finishing for Verso. Before we get started, please take a moment to support this podcast on patreon.com slash the dig. We depend on your support to keep this operation running smoothly. So please hit pause now and contribute what you can at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's May Nye.
May Nye, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. The argument you make in Impossible Subjects turns the conventional debate over so-called illegal immigration on its head. It's something created by positive law, not something that inheres to, to migrants. Explain the conventional way of thinking about, quote-unquote, illegal immigration and how you expose that as an ideological project that legitimates the illegalization of immigrants. The conventional understanding is that there is a law and bad migrants break that law. So uh, there is a limit to the number of people who can come into the country or the kinds of people who can come into the country and people who are not qualified, who are not deserving, who are over that limit are lawbreakers. And uh, there's often, although it's not always explicit, there's also an often a kind of moral judgment about people who break the law as being especially undeserving to uh, be in the country. Now, what I argue uh, and I and I show in my book is that that law itself is something that is uh, politically uh, determined and subject to change. So the laws regarding entry, uh, how many people can come, what kinds of people can come, those have always changed over the course of our history, in the course of all nations' histories. There was a time when there were no restrictions on, uh, on the numbers of people who could come to this country. There were no numerical restrictions until the 1920s. So we, what I mean by positive domestic laws, that these are laws that we pass through the Congress, through political process. And those laws are not written in stone, uh, number one. They can be changed, um, and they have changed. They've changed many times over, over the course of our history. That's the first point. The second point is that once you legislate restrictions on immigration, once you say only so many people can come and only so many kinds of, or, or only such kinds of people can come, you create a situation where you are almost guaranteed to have people come in in excess of those conditions. The most obvious case is uh, with regard to the labor market. Our immigration uh, quotas and limits have nothing to do with labor market demands. It's a completely different calculus. Uh, well, first of all, they're rigid, uh, so they can't respond to changes in labor market demand, but they're also not conceived with any regard to the labor market. So if you have a demand for labor and you have people outside of the country who want to do those jobs, uh, but you have a limit on how many people can come from each country, you are almost inevitably going to have people come without documents. So my book is really about the history of immigration restrictions, right? about the era of modern immigration restriction when we started to impose both numerical and qualitative limits on migration uh, and what the consequences were. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that the invariable result of restrictive legislation is that you will then create two streams of migration, one that is authorized and one that is not authorized, or one that is legal, one that is undocumented. And it's a vicious cycle, self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts in that the illegalization of, of migrant streams creates the very demon that it purports to to attack. Right. So, um, so 
the people who come without documents are um, are are imagined as being uh, immoral, as criminals, as lawbreakers. Um, the mere fact of crossing the border makes them a lawbreaker, right? And um, what people give less credence to or no credence to is uh, the fact that they come for uh, employment, they come to improve their lives, they come to join family members, they come for a better place to raise their families, they come for all the all the same reasons that all migrants come. Some of them also are coming to uh, get away from political persecution or violence in their homelands. Um, but if they don't have um, the prized visa, you know, they are immediately put in a different category as people who are uh, lacking in moral character, disrespect for the law, et cetera, et cetera. But we created that situation. As you say, it's, it's a self-fulfilling and vicious cycle. Yet the political continuities are so invisible to so many. So many liberals were so shocked when Trump descended down his escalator to announce his campaign and said, the Mexicans are criminals, they're rapists, they're bringing drugs, um, and don't really, people don't often think back to, say, Bill Clinton's 1995 State of the Union address when he says, very close to the opening of it, we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. Right. So I think that's probably the worst um, consequence of uh, restrictive immigration is this criminalization of migrants. Um, and, you know, we've all seen the signs that people carry at rallies, right? No human being is illegal, right? And it's and it's a really pernicious kind of thinking uh, because in general, I think many Americans uh, don't believe that, well, let me put it this way. Many Americans would say there's a difference between uh, a person uh, a person's kind of basic personality or, or character and their actions, right? People make mistakes, right? We, we, all, we always are forgiving to people we know who we think are good people, but they make mistakes. Sometimes they make really bad mistakes. <laughs> Sometimes they go to jail for the mistakes they make, right? But we, we, we you know, at this point in, uh, I guess social the social sciences, right? We're way, we're a hundred years beyond um, uh, kind of a eugenical explanations for crime, right? Or the idea that people are criminals because they're 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 poorly bred, right? Or they have bad blood, right? Or or whatever, right? I mean, this is this is a very old discredited theories of criminology. Right now, we, we look at environment and we actually, you know, I mean, a lot of people, well, there are people, I guess, who support mass incarceration and warehousing of, of uh, poor and, and African-Americans. Uh, our, our, but, our president and attorney general. Right, right. I mean, there is that there is that unfortunate trend. Um, but uh, but I think a lot of reasonable people, a lot of reasonable Americans would say, um, you know, uh, he made a mistake. He's not a bad person. He made a mistake. And yet, nobody says that about undocumented immigrants. It, they're lawbreakers, period. Because and, it's inherent to their stati- status as illegal immigrants. Right. And as, then it as, becomes as inherent it. to their, their character, right? It becomes inherent to their character. And then it becomes inherent to their, to their ethnic group, right? It goes up from there, right? All Mexicans are illegal, which is just not true. 
it, it reminds me of uh, I'm I'm reading this book about about Han, Hannah Arendt's whole concept of the right to to have rights that I'm going to do a show on in uh-huh. uh, a, a few weeks and her whole notion that sort of that all these hallowed human rights are only respected it turns out with with citizenship which That's is the right. right to be judged by your actions or something like that right and it's the right to have rights right that's that's her famous line that citizenship is the right to have rights for me your book contradicts a, a very basic myth that liberals opposed to trump i think tend to hold dear which is that we live in a nation of immigrants and uh-huh. that trump is violating that proud tradition um but this notion of the nation of immigrants as Donner Garbaccia and others have shown is is a product of a very particular moment in post-World War II America in which Euro-American immigrants, particularly those descendant from people who immigrated in the early 20th century, entered, began to enter the middle class and the mainstream of white America. And it's an ideology that not only obscures the reality of their own forebearers who were targeted for exclusion or restriction in the 1920s, but but also obscures this entire history of racial population control that has been so central to the American project from Asian exclusion, native genocide, slavery and ghettoization, westward expansion, colonialism. Is Is it fair to say that this period from which the nation of immigrants idea was created, which we have taken to be the norm, is is in fact the exception? And and what do you think we should make of that myth's current state of crisis under Trump? I assume you saw that um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services removed Nation of Immigrants from right. its, its mission right. statement recently. Right. Nation of Immigrants uh, was a brilliant political strategy in the 1950s, the post-war era. Uh, it was a brilliant political strategy by Euro-Americans who were, you know, who wanted immigration reform and they wanted an end to discrimination, uh, especially um, anti-Semitism, you know, rules that barred Jews from owning real estate, um, you know, quotas in colleges, uh, a lot of these things. And uh, its brilliance was in taking the experience of one generation actually one cohort of one generation, the latter cohort of the second generation of the European migration from the turn of the 20th century. It took that experience and it made it the quintessential American experience, right? It made it um, universal. And, you know, that's the experience of upward socioeconomic mobility. And their success was uh, offered as proof of America being a nation of immigrants. And I think what you say is right. I think their success was um, was certainly uh, has to be understood in its historical context. And in many ways, you could say it was uh, not not the norm, but but the exception. So what accounts for their success? I mean, there was there was definitely a upward trend in uh, wages and occupational mobility in the 1950s and 60s. That's absolutely true among the second generation of European immigrants. So what accounts for that? Well, a number of things um, besides their hard work and efforts. Uh, those things would include um, a big expansion of the American economy. 
the creation of really new whole new industries uh, with jobs for technical and professional uh, people, um, things like the aerospace industry, pharmaceutical industry, uh, telecommunications, um, all, all this. And this is a time when you see a uh, vast expansion of state university systems, right? The California, the California State University system, the State University of New York system. It's in this period where you've got campuses uh, springing up like mushrooms all over the place. And uh, and how did people get these educations? Well, there was a GI Bill. The GI Bill gave uh, to veterans of World War II uh, free college education, and it also offered uh, low-interest uh, 30-year mortgages for home purchase. So for the first time, um, this this generation of Americans had access to higher education, uh, thanks to Uncle Sam, had access to home ownership, and that's where uh, that is the only reason why we had this vast expansion of the suburbs uh, in the post-war period, uh, is because you had people uh, basically um, subsidized by the government to buy homes. Uh, you know, before that, you had to really have cash to buy a house. That's kind of like what it is today, right? <laughs> today in New York, you need cash, right? But for, um, you know, 75 years, you just needed a down payment. So this is when you see the big exodus of uh, white, so-called white ethnics out of uh, many central cities to the suburbs. And they go to college um, and they get professional jobs. So it's not to say they didn't work hard. Uh, I'm sure they all did, um, but they had a lot of assistance, and and that assistance uh, really was um, expansion of the American welfare state. And what does the shifting of of the understanding of the origins of America from, say, native dispossession and westward expansion to Ellis Island, what political work does that do, and and what do we make of it now that 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 this concept that did so much work is in crisis. Right. So that's a really important point and it's something that I stress a lot when I when I teach immigration history. Uh, the nation of immigrants as a theory of American history is, as I said, it's brilliant politics, but it's really, really bad history um, because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and in fact, the first, um, so there's a problem of native dispossession. That's a huge problem. That's not a, that's not a migration story. Actually, I'll just tell you a little aside. I worked on um, uh, the expansion of the Ellis Island Museum into the National Museum of American Immigration, and uh, they really they really embraced this idea of nation of immigrants, and they wanted everybody to be an immigrant. So they they wanted to <laughs> they wanted to have the exhibit uh, start with um, no, I know what you're about to say, of- and it's going to be horrifying. No. <laughs> the Bering Strait crossing. No. <laughs> the crossing of the Bering Strait 12,000 years ago. Oh, God. So I was like, oh my God. man, <laughs> the indigenous people don't even get to be indigenous. They have to be migrants, too. So we had a big argument about that. And, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, so that's that's kind of like the absurd, right, logic wow. of this idea. Everybody's an immigrant. <laughs> And then they wanted to make African slaves immigrants. Well, oh, I mean, wow. they migrated. 
that's true, but they're not immigrants. They were enslaved, right? So the and that that caused all kinds of problems for the exhibit because like what's the second generation? I mean, there's many generations of enslaved people, right? I mean, slavery lasts more than one generation, right? So it was it was ridiculous. So um, so there's so many uh, things in American history, so many not just events, but um, you know experiences and phenomena that cannot be collapsed into a migration story. So there's in the problem of uh, conquest, there's a problem of slavery, but there's also the problem that the first Europeans who came to this country, I don't think they could probably be called immigrants either. They were colonial settlers. They were not, immigrants are people who come to join an existing society, right? They come to join something that's already there. And this is something that Donna Garbaccia shows as well, is that they don't, they did not conceive of themselves as Right, they call themselves... They call themselves settlers, emigrants, pioneers, right? They didn't, the word immigrant doesn't really come into the lexicon until the late 19th century. So, um, so they, and, the pre- and the precondition of that coming into the lexicon is there being a settler colonial class that is well-established enough exactly. to see these, this new generation of Europeans, Asians, whatever, as foreign. Exactly. So... You know, you could argue that until the 1880s, uh, we were not a nation of immigrants. We were a nation of settlerism, colonials. Uh, like in know. South Africa, Australia, wherever. Right, right. Um, and, and that settlement involved uh, also bringing uh, millions of enslaved people, and it also means dis- the dispossession of indigenous people. So I think we really do a disservice to um, an honest accounting of American history if we try to collapse everything into this nation of immigrants narrative. And that poses challenges today because um, immigrants are under such attack. Uh, The nativist uh, impulse is so strong and so ugly. And uh, the immigrant rights movement today likes to raise this idea that we're a nation of immigrants. And I don't oppose it because I think it's their way of making their claim to having a place in this country. But, you know, whenever I have the chance, I I try to say, well, you know, it's good politics, but it's more complicated. Why do you think that it's this idea of the nation of immigrants that's in particular in crisis with the ascendancy of of far right nativism? Why why was that line, do you think, so troubling to whoever in the Trump administration decided to remove it from U.S. Uh, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services mission statement? You know, that removing it from the mission statement, it really floored me. Um, because it, to me, it really, it really showed how much they care about their branding. You know, I mean, who looks at the mission statement anyway? <laughs> no one. You know, uh, you know, you go to the, people go to the website to get information. And that's actually one of the missions that they have downgraded is to provide information to residents, anybody, citizens, immigrants, anybody. You know, now if you read their mission statement, it it reads as though it reads as though what what they are, which is an enforcement agency. It reads as though they're just at like a typical DHS agency. Yeah, an enforcement agency, and. Um, 
you know, and and I've I've uh, read online a lot of um, immigration advocates and lawyers who say that now when you call the CIS information line, you, you can't get good information. You know, I think they've cut a lot of the staffing. You know, so just um, as as a as a, a as a resource on citizenship and immigration matters, which is part of its job. They've already decided they're not going to help anybody. <laughs> so, um, so I do think that there, you know, it is part of this uh, turn to a real, uh, a really a nativist agenda, and and now they see their job as to keep people out, and kick people out. It is uh, interesting in in what you say about how how thorny it is that immigrant rights activists do embrace this this nation of immigrants ideas. It's it's totally understandable why that happens, but. But historically, it seems to me that that idea is so bound up with perpetuating the the stigmatization of illegal immigration. Because what I hear time and again is is that they are not anti-immigrant; they just believe people should quote come the right way or legally, right, right. like their forebears right. Right. Uh, purportedly did. So, what I remind people who say that to me is that when your forebears came there were no restrictions so everybody was legal so unless you were unless you were asian <laughs> right right well it's usually europeans who say this um, yeah there were no there were no restrictions for you <laughs> right there were no restrictions on european immigration so if if everybody's legal there's no great honor in being legal there's no special distinction but also actually there were people who were illegal but not because of bars to entry in the united states they were bars to exit in europe so that uh, the racial slur used against Italians, WAP, you know, which means without papers, the papers they're referring to are exit papers. A lot of people left Italy and left the Russian Empire because they were avoiding the draft. They didn't want to be conscripted into the army. And so technically they were illegal uh, because of the rules of exit, not because of rules of entry. But in terms of American policy, there were no restrictions or there were very few. And they were individual qualifications. They had nothing to do with numbers. Um, so everybody was legal. Until uh, the, the, the 1920s, which is something I want to talk to you about. And I think it's important to emphasize that immigration policy for, for so much of American history has been about this demographic engineering, which I think right. people were kind of rudely awakened to when Trump commented about shithole or shithouse countries and his preference for immigrants from Norway and then also, of course, in a concrete policy sense, his policy proposals around ending the diversity visa right. lottery and sharply limiting family-based visas. And I think it's important to just pause and lay out that U.S. immigration policy for a long time after the revolution was to actively encourage a certain type of European immigration at a time when when naturalization was a matter of of state rather than federal power, and immigrants even often had the right to to vote before they were citizens. Right, that's right. What Hiroshi Motomura calls um, Americans in waiting. Right. Did did and 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 then from from there, I want to talk a little bit about the the late nineteenth and early twentieth century restriction movements, but in <clears throat> in detail. But trying to understand the the far right nativism taking place today. To what extent do you see it as as rooted in these 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 deep core traditions that date back to the the beginning of this country, 
And to what degree do you think that it's something new? No, I mean, the, the details may change over time, but it's, uh, but the core of the problem is very old and has been constant in, in my view. Um, there's always been an uh, Anglo-centric view of who the real Americans are. Um, and even as, uh, in terms of a, a question of the founding right, of the United States. It's not even true that everybody was British or English. That's not even true either. There are people from other countries in Europe, um, and there are also enslaved people at the time, as well as Native Americans. So, um, but, you know, in order to create a new nation, um, it was it was actually a challenge for uh, the first generation of American leaders uh, to create a national identity that was distinct from the mother country that you know it had just severed from, but also had its continuities, right? Because Americans never really wanted to be completely divorced from Europe, and that's because they had to contend with the problem of indigeneity here. So they had to see themselves as part of continuing a uh, a European project. Right of, of expanding civilization, so this problem of uh, which is really it's a problem I think basically rooted in conquest and slavery, which is you have uh, a set of people who say they are the nation and yet they are exploiting um, whole you know tens of thousands or millions of people who are doing the work and um, building the society but are kept outside of the proper boundaries of that society, right? And even after, I mean, we had to fight a war to end slavery. And even after that, a lot of those ideas of emancipation were reversed and betrayed. Um, and so it's always been one group after another that has been um, what one famous South Carolina slaveholder called the mudsill class, right? People who do the, the menial and, and dirty work uh, for the other people, and because of the history of African slavery, that 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 class distinction has always been racialized. That's not necessarily true in all countries, right? I mean, I can't think of a country in this world that doesn't have a class division, but the classes are not always, and in many cases, they are not uh, mapped onto racial distinction. Whereas we have that problem in America where in some ways race is an alibi for class distinction. Um, so uh, so in the late 19th century, um, when uh, there was a mass immigration of laboring people from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, um, this nativist, uh, you know, feeling uh, came forth again. And, you know, the restrictionist movement, you know, it took them 20 years before they got the quotas in the 20s. You know, there was, um, you know, they were not a majority. They weren't a majority in Congress. Um, and even when they passed, uh, I mean, in the first two decades of this century, Congress passed uh, a literacy test as a requirement for entry. They passed it four times and it was vetoed four times. Um, so uh, even in the face of strong nativist uh efforts, um, the country remained open 
its borders open. I mean, of course, again, with the exception of Chinese and other Asians. And it's only over Wilson's second veto that they passed the literacy test in 1917. And that's, and the, the, same, war, that's the same legislation that creates the Asian barred zone, correct? The barred, the, right, the barred Asiatic zone, which basically bars everything from Afghanistan to the Pacific, except for Japan. The the Chinese Exclusion Act is 1882, right? Right. You could you could say the first exclu- one was 1875, acts. but the the first main one was 1882. Yes. To what degree do does the the West Coast based anti Asian nativist movement of the late 19th and early 20th century lay the groundwork for the the broader restrictionist project that culminates in the national origins quotas of the 1920s? It does so, I think, perhaps not so much politically, but it does so um, in terms of uh, administration, administrative practices, and uh, a kind of enforcement apparatus that gets set into place with Chinese exclusion. And also, and perhaps most in an American political development sense, in terms of like how. The, it's shifting, for example, powers to state from state to federal uh, right, government exactly. over immigration. Right. Um, and uh, as part of that, I think it, this jurisprudence produced by Chinese exclusion uh, becomes the foundation for all of our immigration policy. And that is the um, the consideration of immigration as a matter of national security, as incident to the nation's sovereignty. Which is so, premised on immigrants being agents of foreign powers. Right, right. Potential or actual, right. So, um, you know, I mean, that's it's that's garbage, right? I mean, immigrants come <laughs> to work. They come to work, um, or they are they actually fleeing their home countries, right, uh, and home governments. Uh, so, um, so immigrants are not agents of foreign powers, and this was done to in order to justify uh, Chinese exclusion. But it becomes a general principle, and it's because of that uh, that aliens have no constitutional rights in matters of admission or expulsion. Think about that: no constitutional rights. So, once an, if an immigrant is present in the country. Um, they have rights under the Constitution. They're protected by the 14th Amendment and by the Bill of Rights. So if an immigrant is arrested for a crime, they have a right to a lawyer, they have right to, you know, uh, rights against search and se- unreasonable search and seizure, et cetera, et cetera. But at the border, meaning at the point of entry and at the point of removal, they do not have those protections. So immigrants have they don't they don't have a right to a lawyer. There's, you don't have a right to to counsel if you're in a deportation hearing. You don't have that right because banishment or expulsion is is somehow not a punishment. Right. It's it's considered a civil right. It's considered a civil action. It's considered a an administrative correction to uh, somebody improperly having been uh, entered. Um, and it's based on and it goes back to this basic idea that. Uh, Regulation of immigration is a matter of protecting the nation's sovereignty. It's a question of national interest. So that's why President Trump thought he was fine in banning people from, you know, the majority Muslim countries, because that was a question of national security. And um, 
this has always uh, meant that immigration cases that go to the courts um, have a very hard time getting anywhere because uh, the government pleads what's called the plenary power, plenary in this in this sense, meaning absolute. The Congress has absolute power over the regulation of immigration and immigrants have no rights. So these are supposed to be two separate domains, right? The domain of immigration, entry and removal where people have no rights and the domain of territorial presence, the domain of civil society where people do have rights. Um, and uh, they're supposed to be separate but if you think about it, they can't really be separated because uh, you don't really have, um, say, you don't really have freedom of worship if the government considers mosques to be havens of terrorists, right? Um, you don't really have freedom of speech if um, the government believes uh, immigrants support the wrong causes. So uh, this is where it becomes a very sticky problem and very hard to justify, even theoretically. And especially since the 1990s, the systems of criminal and immigration enforcement have become so deeply intertwined. Obviously, the state's back longer before then to the enactment of illegal entry and reentry statutes. And I guess even before to Supreme Court, to, to court fights over over detention and 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 deportation and uh, whether they, they, they count, whether they deserve criminal type proceeding right, protections. Right. But um, but since the 1990s, the two have been become so, so intertwined that you have the the worst of American mass incarceration combined with the weak protections of the the immigration system. I would just add to that um, is the privatization of uh, detention, uh, so similar to the prison industrial complex, we now have an immigration detention industrial complex where these facilities are all um, contracted out to private for-profit companies, and they get paid by the number of beds they have and uh, and the number of days that they're filled. So there's an incentive to fill the beds. Which is why their stock went up after Trump was elected. Exactly, right? Skyrocketed. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? 
Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrel, out now from Verso Books. I want to turn back to the, the national origins quota system and sure. just talk about them in some some detail because they are one of the most some of the most critical laws in the 20th century and I think very few people today knew about them at least or until uh, you know Jeff Sessions and Richard Spencer started um, expressing their fondness for this this brazenly racist system that accorded immigration privileges according to racial and ethnic hierarchies of desirability. Um, and worth worthiness. Explain what the quotas were, and also to what degree they fit into a prevailing racial ideology of the time in the twenties, and, and to what extent they 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 remade American racial ideology. So, as I mentioned before, there was a, a very uh, strong nativist movement uh, demanding immigration restriction uh, from the eighteen nineties. In addition to the anti-Asian movements, mostly on the West Coast, there was uh, a more of a national movement against European migration, uh, especially from uh, Southern Europe, you know, like Italians and Greeks, and from Central and Eastern Europe, you know, Slavic peoples, Jews, uh, etc. And um, so, even though these migrations were very much part of the nation's industrialization and urbanization. Um, there was this uh, a lot of anxiety about people from different religious backgrounds, people who didn't speak English, people who were believed to be uh, illiterate peasants, you know, contaminating the the Anglo-Saxon stock of the country. So they wanted to restrict this immigration. And as I mentioned, the first device that they uh, tried to use was a literacy test, um, and they finally got that passed in 1917. But after World War One, uh, it actually proved to be a, a rather um, weak barrier uh, because most people could actually pass the test. It was done in your native language, and you just had to read a few words on some flashcards. So they these um, uh, backward European peasants weren't as weren't as dumb as the eugenicist right. restrictionists hoped they were. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And actually, I think you know literacy rates were rising, you know, throughout Europe. You know, in the early 20th century. So by the ni- by 1920, you know, more more people, even if they were poor, they could read and write. So anyway, so they they looked for other ways to restrict immigration, and um, so in 1921, Congress passed uh, an Emergency Restriction Act, um, and it was uh, there was a kind of a moral panic about. Uh, people fleeing war-torn Europe and and the, and the hordes being full of uh, anarchists and communists. Because this is the first Red Scare, the the era of the Palmer raids, and right, right. So it was very much an anti-immigration type of Red Scare, and so um, uh, so they passed an Emergency Act in 1921, and it was based on uh, the idea that. Um, there would be quotas uh, based on um, 
3% of uh, the population in 1890, 18, they used the 1890 census to get a 3%. So figure of the foreign born, right? So, um, uh, so, and that actually proved to be not such a great formula. So they thought of a restricted immigration to 3% of uh, I think they had a they had a ceiling of maybe 200,000, and it was supposed to be allocated based on 3% of the foreign-born population. So uh, if there was uh, X number of Italians in 1890, 3% would be allowed to come, right, in 1921. And that actually uh, wasn't good enough for the restrictionists. It didn't restrict enough people. And so when they went to work, to devise a permanent system, right? Because that was an emergency one. So then they were tasked with an, a permanent system. Uh, they wanted they wanted uh, a two percent formula. They wanted it less, uh, but they also couldn't justify using the 1890 census because this is 1924. So there was pressure to use the 1920 census, but that would have created even more foreign-born people in the population. So what I want to point out here is that there is always this, there's always this double move going on. On the one hand, there's the agenda, which is to restrict immigrants from Italy and, and Russia, right, mostly. I mean, to restrict the Jews and Italians. That's the agenda. But there's another move that's always going on, which is that they don't want to say that. I mean, they say it, but then they don't want to say it. They want to. They don't want to appear discriminatory. Uh, they are aware that there is something like the Fourteenth Amendment, so they're not sure if it's going to apply or not. Um, and so there, there is a kind of um, uh, a pressure on them to use a more polite kind of formulation. So we know we we have examples of this historically, like separate but equal, right? that justifies racial segregation. They invent these um, concepts and euphemisms to accomplish another, uh, a more nefarious kind of aim. So they came up with the idea of national origin quotas so they could use the 1920 census, but then they said they would distribute the quotas according to the national origin of the entire American population. So they added all the white people, all the white native born stocks, because that's how they talk, quote unquote, stocks into the population so that the foreign born became a minority, right? And that's how you came out with quotas that gave Great Britain, you know, like uh, the, Nor Great, the British Isles and the Northern European countries. That's how they got, you know, 65, the first round, they got 85% of the, qu the quotas, Right, because they weren't just counting the foreign born, they were counting the entire American population. And then they very cleverly said, if we don't include all Americans, all people in this country in 1920, we would be discriminating against the native born. Against the, the, old, right. the old stock Americans, <laughs> the wasps. Right, the so-called old stock Americans. So they accomplished what they would have accomplished with a 2% quota of the foreign born by making it proportionate to the national origin of the entire population. So, you know, so Norway had a bigger quota than Italy, even though Norwegians weren't coming to this country anymore, right? So, um, so it created a situation, so it also lowered the 
numerical ceiling to 150,000, which is 15% of the pre-World War One average, annual average. So we had about a million people coming a year before World War One, and they cut it to 150,000, right? That's an enormous, an enormous decrease. And then they distributed them in such a way as to really favor countries that were actually not sending many immigrants anymore, except for Germany. Germany was still sending people, but you know, the Scandinavian countries, the British Isles, they were sending not that many people anymore. So you had a lot of unused quotas, slots, right? And then you had countries like Italy, which had like 5,800. Greece had, I don't know, maybe even fewer, you know, so you had high sending areas that were completely, almost completely shut out. An Asian exclusion was reaffirmed and, I believe, expanded to Japan formally? Right. So the Act of 24 really has three parts. So this part I just described with the national origins formula. And that was really aimed at the countries of Europe. Okay. Then for Asia, they had a different policy. So that so the European policy was restriction, right? Fewer people to come. The Asian policy was not restriction. It was exclusion. Nobody can come. But again, they used a euphemistic device rather than barring Asian exclusion explicitly. They used um, the concept of eligibility for citizenship, meaning naturalization, because the Supreme Court had very conveniently ruled in the early 1920s that Asians were ineligible to citizenship. So the 1924 law excludes all persons ineligible to citizenship. So with one stroke, they made all Asians inadmissible. And notably, given the focus in today and for many decades of the debate over so-called illegal immigration, there was no cap on Western Hemisphere immigration right. to the right. to the U.S. And I believe part of that was one, just because that's not where the national debate was focused, but it also has to do with the critical role that Mexican migrants were beginning to play in southwestern, in the ascendant southwestern agricultural industry. Right. So the um, agriculturalists in the southwest did not want the labor supply disrupted. Um, but there's another factor, too, uh, which I think might even be more, have been more important at the time, which was um, the position of the State Department that they did not want to impose restrictions on uh, on our neighbors, that because they understood that immigration policy is usually reciprocal, and if they were going to bar people from Mexico and Canada coming into the country, those countries would likely make it dif- more difficult for Americans to go to those countries. And we're not which would interfere about with the Monroe doc Monroe doctrine. Right, right. So we're talking about bus- very significant business interests. Um, in both uh, Canada and Mexico and Latin America, so um, so they so what they did was um, by the late twenties they figured out ways to administratively restrict Mexican immigration. So they they had a circular that instructed State Department consuls in Mexico to not give visas to Mexican laborers unless they had already lived in the in the United States previously. So what, what this whole system did, though, ironically, was even though Mexicans were not formally excluded or restricted, 
they were administratively restrictive, but also because now you have this whole new system, right, where everybody has this quotas, there has to be a visa, you know, that's given by a consul abroad, right? So no matter what country you come from in Europe, it has a quota of X. So they have to keep count because if you're X plus one, you're not supposed to come in, right? So there's this whole bureaucracy of inspection and counting that. And, that and this is a major place. shift from the, the, the prior norm, which was inspection at the port of entry. And so there's this extension of borders into other countries, which if right, we're trying right. to understand so, the U.S. today using Mexico as a proxy immigration force to exactly, um, push right. back Central Americans, the roots are really back here. Right. Right, exactly. Right, that's an excellent point. So, but when you so if, if you got the if you were granted a visa from the consulate abroad, when you showed up, you had to show the paper, right? You had to show the document. This is where the whole idea of documented versus undocumented originates, and it, it doesn't go back really any farther than the twenties. I mean, before World War One, we didn't even have passports. It's so right, now you have to. Have a, now you need a passport. Now you need a visa. Um, and uh, and so everybody has to play by that rule. So it's not just at Ellis Island or Boston. It's also on the Mexican border. So um, so even though there was no numerical restriction on Mexicans entering the country, they now were required by the 1924 Act to go through an official border inspection station, an official port of entry, go through inspection, present a visa pay a head tax, right, and be inspected. So a lot of people just didn't bother to do that, right, because they had been going back and forth informally uh, for years, you know, working on the U.S. side, going back to Mexico on the off-season, uh, or maybe they just, you know, they just move and settled here. But there was, this was a real uh, change in what was Im- imposed on an existing migratory population that was also onerous. It was expensive. Um, it was degrading because unlike Europeans, they made Mexicans go through a much um, stricter physical examination. Um, so people didn't bother to do it, but that made them undocumented, right? That made them in the country illegally. So it's a great irony in the lack of quotas on Mexico uh, meant that a border that was formally open, easy to cross, right? But easy to cross only without documents. So you have the creation of uh, large numbers of people, uh, mostly agricultural workers, uh, who the growers discover are actually not a bad deal, right? Because they can pay them even less and they can call the border patrol if people, you know, organize or they have strikes, you know, that kind of thing. So it becomes, so illegality becomes part of the construction of uh, a migrant agricultural workforce uh, comprised mostly of Mexicans uh, in the Southwestern United States. One, one other thing I want to touch on about the, the national origins quotas before we move on is that one, one of their consequences is that Many Jews fleeing the Holocaust were denied entry to the United States and murdered in Europe as a result. That's right. And actually, um, I mean, Germany and Austria had fairly high quotas. So it wasn't really 
a direct consequence of there not being quota spots available. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was anti-Semitism. Actively, was active, actively practiced by, by high-level State Department officials. Right. right. It was rank anti-Semitism. And the way they did it, again, was they didn't say, we don't want the Jews because that's, that's too impolite. So they said, uh, we have a depression. So um, in order to, uh, in order to um, convince us that you're not going to be a public charge, you have to show you have one year, you have income that can, you can self-support for a year. So they denied people visas if they, unless they could show they had enough income, they had enough money, assets to support themselves for a year. One thing that I, I think that this this whole exposition of the reality of American immigration law that 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 you have really brings to mind for me is how this idea of assimilation that's so that's so prevalent and mainstream in American discussions over immigration is really a way to not talk about subordination and that shifts the burden of racism onto those targeted by it. And you write that the category of illegal immigrants is a, is a caste group, one that, one that people don't understand as such because of the way that illegality is made a characteristic that inheres to immigrants rather than to the system of immigration law. And, right. and you write, quote, in a liberal society that values the moral and legal equality of all persons, the undocumented are impossible subjects, person whose presence is a social reality yet a legal impossibility. Tell me about this and and what you mean by caste group. What I mean by caste group is that you can't get out of it. So the assimilation theory is one of uh, like a conveyor belt, right? Or a ladder, right? So even if an immigrant comes here and and they're poor, right? Or uneducated, the theory goes, if you work hard and study hard, you can climb the ladder, right? And... It is true that for many people, including many immigrants, the United States is, has more social mobility than many other countries in the world. That is true. However, there are a lot of barriers, right? And not everybody is able, you know, not everybody is able to overcome all those barriers. There's barriers of race, you know, um, uh, you know, education, etc. But the theory is that, you know, you can climb this ladder. And so... Um, for, so for the lawful permanent resident, the legal alien, right, they can come and then they can climb that ladder and they can become a citizen, right? So our, it's actually easy to become a citizen in this country if you are here legally, right? You have to be here for five years and not have committed any crimes and pass a fairly simple test in English. So, but if you're here without papers, if you're here undocumented, you cannot get on that conveyor belt. You can't get even onto the first rung of the ladder. You are right because you you can't progress. You can, you are not. You will never be eligible for things that legal immigrants are eligible for, and you will never be eligible for citizenship. The only way you can get out of that caste group is to have your status changed, is to become legalized or or deported, you know, for that matter, right? And what does the reality of this caste system tell us about this? this very prevalent idea of assimilation? I think for the undocumented, it's, um, you know, it's, it's what colloquially people t- call living in the shadows. 
um, you know, they can never, um, they can never truly belong. And, you know, I, I know people who are undocumented who've been here 25 years and they can't advance. They can't get better jobs. Um, they can only kind of work for cash or, you know, under the table. Um, they can't, uh, you know, they can't go, they could, they couldn't go to school to get a college degree. You know, they're, they have no options. Now, the only thing I will say is that if they have children who are born in this country, the children are citizens. And that's the only, um, that's, that's the difference between being undocumented and being enslaved, right? Because slavery is passed down by generation, right? That is truly, you know, something you can't get out of. Well, not can't ever. I mean, you could buy your way out. You could be freed, right? But and not normally. But not, not as a matter of course. Right? Not as a matter of course, right? So the undocumented immigrant is not the same as a slave because the slave passes his or her condition, status to the child, right? The undocumented, uh, if they have children in, born in the United States, they are citizens. They are birthright citizens. And that is something that the right wing also loves to challenge, right? But that's in the 14th Amendment. I think that's actually not that easy to overturn. So so undocumented status is a one-generation caste, you know, we could say. So it's not the same as caste, say, in India, you know, where like slavery, it's passed down to generations. Um, and, uh, and even if you... Um, you know, even if an undocumented person marries a person who's legal, uh, it's actually very hard to get their status changed. It's not impossible, but it's it's actually still very hard. So it's being stuck, right? It so it runs counter to um, the theory of American society and mobility, which is that everybody can rise. Well, here's one group that is categorically legally not allowed to rise. To what degree do you think that there's a more economically functionalist argument to explain the status of undocumented immigrants as a hyper-exploited caste group in a segmented labor market? And to what degree do we need to embed that within a more complex and unpredictable set of political contradictions, political economic contradictions. Right, right. No, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, there's definitely the economic dimension. Um, the immigrants in general are paid less than native born and the undocumented are paid even less. And um, and you're right, there is a segmented labor market, whereas, which means that people from different backgrounds are kind of um, uh, channeled into certain industries or occupations, right? And, uh, and others are close to them. That's definitely the case, but I think that in this country, those um, that segmentation of the labor market is always overlain by race um, and national national difference, and um, and it also has to do with American foreign policy relations with countries overseas. You know, so take the Philippines. The Philippines is a very high sending country, uh, high high migrant sending country to the United States. And they, the Philippines kind of specializes in certain occupational um, export, if you will, uh, nursing and other medical technology, right? So, you know, there's shortage of nurses in the Philippines. It's really sad, right? 
Uh, but they they ton they train tons of nurses and they they for they're for quote unquote export. Um, so they fill a need in the United States in terms of a kind of um, lower levels of the nursing occupational hierarchy, um, and uh, and they work in uh, even less desirable health facilities like nursing homes. Um, but why why from the Philippines? Well. The Philippines has a long relationship to the United States, right? It used to be a colony. Um, it has a very long history of uh, nurse education done by Americans. It goes back to the colonial period. Um, so there are these uh, political, geopolitical, and, and social and educational institutional ties that have existed over decades, uh, which is why a country like the Philippines produces this kind of occupational training for export, um, and uh, some other random country may not have that. And as a revealing aside, if I have this, if I remember correctly, the very same congressional legislation that provided for Filipino independence also provided for shutting off immigration from the Philippines. Right. They they were getting rid of a Filipino problem by, by uh, giving independence. Right. And then, you know, but the Philippines was also kind of a showcase or kind of a poster country for a kind of neo-imperialism, right, where you don't have to have administrative responsibility for a colonial territory. You can run it through um, clientage, through uh, business interests, trade interests, and uh, with a military base or two. Rather through the, than through the majority white settlement and dispossession that had governed U.S. territorial expansion prior to the right, Spanish American War. Um, right. A related question is to what degree you think we can explain far-right nativism today as a simple white backlash to the prospect of a majority-minority, so-called, uh, America, and, and to what degree that is true— I think it's definitely true on many levels, but that that yes, can that that can only be understood in the context of political economy and in the state of U.S. empire. You know, I mean, I've stressed in this conversation the continuities, right, of a, a kind of um, white settler, white Anglo dominant uh, core uh, of American identity. Um, that's. That's not just an it's not just an identity politic. It's a, it's an identity rooted in power, right? Power over uh, enslaved people, power over um, Asian workers, uh, power over other laborers that came from Europe, and power in over other parts of the world, right? So it's it's not just um, it's too simple to say it's a white backlash. I mean, the whole idea of a white Anglo. Saxon identity is rooted in an idea of what made, you know, so-called what made America great, right? What made America powerful, right? And it's an identification of uh, people across class lines with a ruling interest, right? Which might even have some token faces of color, right? And ethnics in it. But, um, but to be sure, it's, it's a power elite based on on this long history of dispossession and, and exploitation, and it's a, and it's a global phenomenon, right? It's not just uh, domestic. In fact, immigration is always connected to the global, 
right? There's reasons why certain countries send to other countries, and there's reasons why there's unequal distribution of wealth in the world, right? That's not accidental. That also has to do with global power relations. So, uh, so, but what you said is absolutely correct that there is a demographic uh, revolution going on in this country, um, and uh, and this is what they they want to stop. Right. And and this is just, you know, parenthetically, why uh, to the extent that any of them will entertain a pathway to citizenship for dreamers or for the undocumented, it's always this really, really long pathway. Right. Fifteen years, like the latest I heard. That's the best the Democrats could get out of the Republicans. It's a 15 year wait. Now, that's that to me is very obvious. It's because they don't want people to vote. They want to forestall another two generations of voters. So it's all about, you know, it's all about electoral uh, strength. Um, you know, if you look at Obama's two elections, uh, you could make a very strong argument that Latino vote was decisive in the states that flipped uh, from Republican to Democratic, right? Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Florida, you know, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, wasn't the only factor, but it was a huge factor in the, in those states. And this is what, and also you know, a dis- decisive factor in the trajectory of Obama's immigration policies, which went from deporter in chief to a moment of political crisis thanks to immigrant activists. Exactly that resulted exactly. in DACA, and even though exactly. it was blocked in court, DAPA on this subject. One one thesis of my. That the book that I'm finishing up, which I will be relentlessly promoting to my listeners later this year, um, is, is <laughs> as you should. Is, is that these these decades of, of contradictions in, in immigration politics have have produced a new polarization after these decades where there was really an anti-immigrant and especially anti-so-called illegal immigrant consensus between Democrats and Republicans. Um, if we look at even not very long ago, if we look at how many Democrats voted for the Secure Fence Act in 2006, which today the fence has become the wall and this odious icon of of, of Trump's um, racist nativism, which is what it should stand for, but it didn't. It was a, a common sense thing that a liberal Democrat might vote for. Um, and um, it seems to me that the breakdown of, of this 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 bipartisan consensus over illegal immigration is offers both a lot of dangers and opportunities. The dangers are Trump's embrace of 1920s style restrictionism. But I think it also means this new power and space for a pro-immigrant left that that rejects the prior consensus on things like border militarization and deportation of so-called criminal aliens, things that liberals were for decades very much a party to. Do you see opportunities here? I don't have much faith in the Democrats on border border enhancement or deportation. They always fall for the strategy that they have to create bad immigrants to justify helping some good ones. You know, they, there's always this division between the deserving and the undeserving. And border security is always the trade-off for legalizing, you know, some people. And it's a flawed, it's a flawed logic. The idea is that you kind of wipe the slate clean, you legalize people who are here, and then you stop more from coming in. Well, it doesn't work that way. 
um, but this is the logic behind it. So I think, unfortunately, that's kind of, um, I don't know, it might even be hardwired into any immigration deal that's made in Congress. Um, although I think, you know, some people say, well, they'll vote for the wall because it won't get built anyway. It'll be held up in court by environmental challenges and property owners challenges uh, for decades. So, I, you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, but I think that, uh, you know, where there is hope is that um, the immigrant rights movement and uh, both immigrants and supporters of immigrants uh, is very well organized. It's very strong. It's very proactive. It's very militant. Uh, it's very savvy. And um, and I think the Democrats can be pressured. Republicans, I don't think, can be pressured so much, but the Democrats can be pressured. And so I think if, um, you know, if, if the Democrats can win back the House in uh, 2020, um, or no, 2018 even, gosh, it's this year, if they can flip the Congress, um, then I think that the grassroots mobilization in conjunction with the lawsuits, we haven't talked about the lawsuits, right? But the oh judiciary <laughs> has been has been awesome, right, in stalling the Trump agenda, right? So between the courts and the grassroots, I think that there are real opportunities ahead. But I think uh, the first thing we have to do is, is uh, take back the Congress. Yeah, I mean, on the on the one hand, Schumer very quickly offered Trump wall funding in exchange for DACA, which is right. just textbook, the sort of comp- so-called comprehensive immigration exactly. reform exactly. consensus that's dominated the establishment Democrats and Republicans for, for a few decades. But on the other hand, they did briefly shut down the government, which indicates a power for the left immigrant rights movement that I don't think existed a few years back. No, that's true. I mean, I think the, the Democrats can be put on the defensive in this in this way. So we'll see. All right. Well, Maynai, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. among other things, the author of Impossible Subjects. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that antagonism between English and Irish immigrant workers is the secret of the impotence of the English working class and the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is an extraordinary help. Mm-hmm.